If you've got a Bible, you can open to 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. We're going back before we go forward, right? Um, so we've been in 1 Peter now for the last several months together since September. Took a little break for Advent and the first of the year. And now we're circling back um, into 1 Peter. But we're going to go back into chapter 2, verse 17, before we continue to push further into chapter 3 next weekend. Um, one, one of the, an article that I read online over, over the weekend um, from the Atlantic um, uh, journal uh, was entitled, What Happens When the Moral Majority Becomes a Minority? What Happens When the Moral Majority Becomes a Minority? And in that article, Laura Turner, she cited an individual who wrote an op-ed piece for Time Magazine just after the Supreme Court's decision to legalize uh, and, 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 and normalize same-sex marriage within the U.S. This, this blogger, Rob uh, Rod Dreher wrote these words. He said, Christians must understand that, they are going to, that things are going to get much more difficult for us. We're going to have to learn how to live as exiles in this country. We're going to have to learn how to live with at least a mild form of persecution. And we're going to have to change the way we practice our faith and teach it to our children to build resilient communities. Resilient communities. Because he's observing, and I think he's right in his observation, that there's, there's external pressure that's going to begin to press on Jesus' church in such a way that there will be many who feel uh, the, the, the need to kind of capitulate to that external pressure as it pushes, seeking to conform them into the, the church, into the image of the world. He's, I think he's right. Things are going to get harder before they ever get better. Things are going to get hotter before we ever find relief here as a church. As God's people, we've talked thus far in Peter about what it means to live as a sojourner, what it means to live as an exile, what it means to live. And Peter, all over the place throughout his little epistle there, man, it's popping up left and right all over the pages of what it looks like to live as a person whose, whose, whose conduct and character and convictions are shaped not by, not by the values that are pervasive in this earthly kingdom, in this country, but as a person whose values and conduct and character are shaped by the heavenly culture of a heavenly kingdom. Peter's talking about that. You're exiles, you're sojourners, you're strangers and aliens in this world. This is not your true home. This is not your true home. And a part of my fear is that we've had basically a generation of Christians who have, who have not, who have grown up in the church, self-professed, church-attending Christians who would identify themselves as followers of Jesus who have not been exposed to some of that teaching within the New Testament and the Old that speak about this not being our home. Listen, I, I, read, a, I read a quote online this week that said, listen, if, 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 you, if your best life is now, if, this, if, this is your, if, if, you're, if you want your best life now, then you're going to miss out on heaven. Right? You'll be sorely disappointed when you get there if you spend your life trying to make this your best life now. There's a whole generation of Christians who have been devoid of some of this teaching and they don't think very Christianly about things or respond very Christianly whenever pressure gets pushed. Our minds aren't being shaped by the Word of God. We don't value Christianly because our hearts aren't being formed by the word. We don't speak and act Christianly because those internal structures of our mind and our heart, they're not being conformed into the image of Christ. And they're not being pressed into, uh, we're not being pressed into conformity with the word that has been made flesh, Jesus himself. And nor are we being um, inspired uh, or pressed into the, to the image of the word that has been inspired, written, and preserved by the spirit for the church. 
There's basically been, within the last generation, to a large degree, not, not exclusively, but to a large degree, there's been a famine. And it's not been a famine of bread. It's not been a famine of, of grains or gluten. It's not been a famine of ice cream, even though there was a brief one there for a while when Bluebell went out of production. There's been a famine of the Word of God in Jesus' church. There's been almost a whole generation of Christians who's grown up in a church when, and they have, they've been equipped, right, to have three steps to conflict resolution. And they've been equipped to have five strategies to a meaningful marriage. But they have not wrestled with the realities. And they have no one now to pastor them through the, sh- the massive sh- cultural shift that the church is experiencing in this day and age. And one of the areas that we're struggling with this most in, I believe, and one of the reasons I believe this is because I see the Facebook traffic and the social media traffic and the Twitter traffic as it kind of expands and the bloggers who are blowing up all over the places they write about this election cycle that we're moving in straight into the heart of. Right? There's been, for, for so long, the, the, the Christian church, the conservative, uh, the evangelical church has kind of been hand in glove with conservative politics. Leonce Crump, who's a pastor in Atlanta, said there's too long been an overzealous blending of conservative politics and evangelicalism. Too long been. Conservative politics and Christian church have been like a hand in a glove since the late 70s. In fact, in 1979, there was a group called the Moral Majority that kind of began to try and leverage its influence and leverage its power. It was a coalition of pastors who came together to try and shape and influence the future of the nation through the political process. That, that organization eventually disbanded, but its aim was to inject Christian theology into the heart of a nation, into the heart of a nation, and to make this kingdom God's kingdom. That's what they were aiming for. Because they didn't see, they didn't see necessarily in Scripture that those two things, they run, they, they run parallel to each other in this life. That you're never going to find a kingdom on this earth that intersects and is the same line running in the same direction as God's kingdom. But there's always going to be a parallel line of God's kingdom and this earthly kingdom in which we live. I think they miss that somewhere in trying to form and shape a nation into God's kingdom. As opposed to seeing God's kingdom existing amongst every people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And as a result, as a result... There's individuals uh, coming out of that process, right? Coming out of that process where, obviously, I think what the title of that article is very accurate. <laughs> what happens when the moral majority becomes the minority? Because that's the position that we're in now. That's what we're facing now. And you know what it looks like? It's beginning to look much more like the audience that Peter was writing to audience that Peter was writing to. The church today in America is beginning to look more like the New Testament church than ever as there is a thinning out of nominal Christianity. And those who truly have yielded and surrendered everything to Jesus, they're not abandoning the church, but they're pressing further into it. And I think that's a part of what we are seeing. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to go back a little bit before we go forward. I want to go back into 217. Because in this election cycle, there's a massive amount of buzz, right? <laughs> if you're on social media, if you watch the news, if you are online at all, you see all the buzz surrounding this election cycle. 
Some of it, people thinking soberly. Some of it, people thinking very drunkenly about the way that things are going. But everyone, without exclusion, almost everyone desires to see some kind of change, right? People want to feel secure. People want the economy to rebound and to grow. People want elected officials who are under the Constitution as opposed to over the Constitution. They want change desperately. In fact, some people are so desperate for change that they're willing to hitch their wagon to a candidate who launched his campaign by declaring that Mexico is sending us a bunch of rapists and thieves. They're willing to hitch their wagon to a candidate who said that he could walk out onto Fifth Avenue in New York and shoot someone in the head and not lose a single vote. To a candidate who frequently engages in all kinds of racial baiting and slurs, a candidate who is proud, doesn't feel like he has ever needed to apologize and there's nothing that he needs to be forgiven of, who says he is a Christian and wants to punch protesters in the face. There are people who are so desperate for change that they would hitch their wagon to someone who obviously, though he professes faith in Jesus, man, there's like negative 50 would appear, right, on the, on the outside, negative 50 Christian value shaped into the image of Christ in his life. There's some people who are so desperate for change that they've hitched their wagons to the politics and politicians to bring the change that they so desire. They're pushing all their chips to the center of the table on a particular candidate saying, if, this, if my guy or gal, right, this election cycle, if my guy or gal gets in, oh man, it's gonna, things are going to change. Things are going to be different. We'll be more secure. The economy will grow. All those things that we long for are going to take place. And then there are some, there are some who are on the opposite side of the spectrum, and they're going, man, if that guy or that gal gets elected, I'm moving to Canada, right? Or I'm moving to Europe, or I'm moving to Africa. I'm moving somewhere else than this nation. But listen, there are five words, five words in 1 Peter 2.17 that tell us that both of those perspectives, as far as hitching your wagon to a particular candidate, thinking they're going to be the change that, that we need, and those who are going, if, that other, if the guy on the other side of the aisle or the girl on the other side of the aisle gets elected, I'm moving somewhere else. There are five words in 1 Peter 2.17 that tells us that both of those perspectives are dead wrong. There are five words in 1 Peter 2.17 that tell us that tell me that no matter who gets elected, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to keep preaching the same Jesus. I'm going to keep talking about this same Christ. And I'm going to pray for my leaders because that's what the Bible commands me to do. No matter who's in office. There are five words in 1 Peter 2.17. And unless those five words are driven and wedged deep within the souls and consciences of Jesus' church, then you're going to find yourself on one end of that spectrum or the other saying, this guy or gal is going to bring all the changes that we need. And if that person gets elected, peace out. Right? I'm going to throw the deuces and I'm gone. But there's five words in 1 Peter 2.17 that... that, that Say both ends of that spectrum are dead wrong. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.17. He writes these words. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I want you to listen to what Peter says in that string of commands. He starts off by saying you got to treat every person, Christian, Jew, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, atheist, agnostic, 
black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Indian, Middle Eastern, European, South American, lower, middle, and upper class. You've got to treat every person with inherent dignity and value as a man or woman or child that's been created in the image of God. You're to honor the image of God in everyone. Everyone. And then he says, as you honor everyone, there should be a particular love, though, affection that you feel for your brothers and sisters in Christ, the brotherhood, those whom God has brought from death to life, those whom God has brought from darkness to light. There should be a love, particular affection, deep-seated, deep-seated affection for those who are part of the household and family of God. And he comes to those final two commands and those string of commands, and he says, fear God and honor the emperor. Those are the five words, right? It took me 57 minutes to get through one verse a couple of weeks ago. I'm hoping it takes me a little less time to get through these five words. But here we go. Here we go. What does Peter tell us that will help us avoid either end of that spectrum? He says, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's look at what it means to honor the emperor before we look at what it means to fear God. What does it mean to honor the emperor? Obviously, Peter is writing into a different political situation than, which, than the one in which we live. We live in a situation where we participate in politics by, by voting um, and vo- voting in electoral uh, uh, representatives, electoral college. We're going to go and then vote in the president. So we have a say. We can, we can, we can lobby for certain things. We can, we can campaign for certain things. We have a voice, some sort of a voice in the government. So Peter's writing into a context a little bit different from our own, but I think his command to honor the emperor should be applied across the board to any elected official that gets installed into an office on the basis of the vote of the people who put them there. To honor those who rule, to honor those who lead, to honor those who govern, to honor those who are elected into office. And a part of what that means to honor them, to treat them as a person who's created in the image of God, as an image bearer of God, to honor them, part of what that means is that you treat them like a person and not a platform. Or you treat them like a person and not a policy. Look, you may disagree violently with the policies of a particular candidate. You may disagree violently. I'm not telling you to go out and commit violence. But there just may be a, 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 like that, that regurgitation reflex in, your, in your, your stomach, in your digestive tract, because of some of the policies and platforms of some of the candidates and some of their perspectives that they're running with. But that does not mean that you should speak about them in ways that are slanderous, in ways that impugn their character, in ways that would treat them as less than a man or a woman created in the image of God. You can speak out against their policies. You can speak out against their perspectives. You can speak out against their platforms. But what I see is a trend, not only outside the church, but particularly within it, of men and women who do not, of Christians who would say, yes, I'm on Jesus' team, but the way they speak about particular people, not policies, people, is in a very unchristian way. A very unchristian way. And listen, church, that's got to stop. It's got to stop. Part of what it means to honor the emperor is that, yes, we're able to address the policies, perspectives, and platforms of those who are elected into office. But whenever you look into their eyes, is all, do you see more than a platform? Do you see more than a policy? 
do you see a person created in the image of God? It's a part of what it means to honor them. Another part of what it means to honor them in our particular context is that you engage in the political process as you have an opportunity to and participate by voting. But whenever you go to the polls, whether it be for a primary election on Super Tuesday, which is two days from now, or whether it be for the general election in November, when you go to the polls, listen, part of what it means to vote in a responsible way, it means that you vote on, based on issues that matter to God, not just issues that matter to you. Not just issues that matter to you. Listen, there are some folks who are, who, 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 who have not let their vote be shaped by the word in such a way that they vote not on the basis of their checkbook, but on the basis of their convictions. Like, are, are, are we willing, really willing to sell out everything that we have to put a candidate in office who makes promises to help the economy grow so there's going to be more zeros in our bank account than there were before he, she got elected? No matter where they stand on issues that matter to God, on issues that are on God's heart. So you participate in the political process. You don't just kind of sit back and just go, well, it doesn't really matter what I do anyways. This is going to happen. It's all rigged. Conspiracy. I'm going to go move out in the woods, build a bunker, and live there for the rest of my life. No, you engage, but you vote. You vote consistent with your convictions and not just your checkbook. It's part of what it means to honor the emperor and those who rule in our context. But what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to fear God? This is where I think the crux of the issue is for us as a church, as the church in America in 2016. The third command in that string of commands that Peter gives to fear God, in this context it means to revere or to venerate or to treat with deference or a reverential obedience. To fear means to revere him, to obey him, to worship him, to defer to him at every turn, to see him as the true and only source of authority in our lives. And so as Christians, we're going to bend our knee to God and God alone. And if we bend our knee to any earthly ruler, it's because we've been told to do so by God. And so we're going to come underneath his authority. We're going to defer to him at every turn. We're going to reverentially obey him. But let me ask you this question. Many of, us, many, many of us heard that explanation before, that what it means to fear God, it means to worship him, it means to revere him, it means to come under his authority, it means to defer to him on all things. But let me ask you this question. Where does that reverence come from? Where does that deference to God come from? Where does that obedience and coming underneath God, where does, where does that come from? Because listen, you're not born with it. <laughs> you're not born with it. Listen, the word fear throughout the Bible doesn't only mean, doesn't only mean revere or, or respect. It also means to be struck with terror or awe or legitimately to be afraid. Legitimately to be afraid. And there is a sense in which the recognition of God's holiness and our sinfulness, it should cause us to be struck with fear and seized, as, as one, one uh, commentator said, seized by alarm. 
So we see God is holy. We see that we are sinful. We see that there is an incredible difference between who he is and how he acts, who we are and how we act. And there should be a legitimate sense of terror that it would strike within our hearts. And so like Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he comes before God and he sees God in the temple and he sees Elevated on the throne, the train of his robe is so massive that it fills the temple. And he's got these winged creatures surrounding him, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. Whenever Isaiah looks and has that vision into the temple, what does he say? Man, that's cool. I'm going to obey that dude. Is that what he says? No, what does he say? He falls to his knees and he says, woe is me. Why? Because the glory of God has exposed his own humanity. The holiness of God has exposed his own sinfulness. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. I live among a people who may say they're worshiping worshiping God, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But by their lives, man, there is something else that they're, they're drawn to, something else that their lives are centered upon. And Isaiah just falls on his knees and face before God. Woe is me. Woe is me. He's legitimately afraid. Because he recognizes in that moment that what he deserves is the anger and the justice and the wrath of God. That's that's Isaiah's response. And listen, for those who are outside of Christ, if you are not a Christian in the room this morning, for those who are outside of Christ, this is the only fear of God that you are able to know because you do rest under his wrath and his anger. Now, that is not, a, that doesn't play very well, okay? That's not a very popular concept in our day, to think about the wrath of God or the anger of God. In fact, there are many people who have a very hard time with that when it lands on their palate. Maybe some of you in here this morning have a hard time with that. And so what should we say to that? How should we respond? Let me say this. Let me say this. You need to see, one of the things you need to see, because most of us say, God is love. There's no anger or wrath in God. There's no justice in God. God is just pure love. Let me just say this. Without wrath and anger, there is no true, real love. The two are intertwined and connected together. Let me show you. Let me show you. This is true. I'll show you it's true from your own experience. Right? If you, if you have a professional acquaintance at work, somebody that you know, or somebody that moved in down the street from you, a neighbor who maybe lives four, five or six doors down, and they do something to violate your trust, they do something to violate your trust, you might be a little bit perturbed, you might be a little bit upset, you might be a little bit angry, but if the spouse that you stood before God and all of your friends and family and you pledged your life, allegiance, love, loyalty, and affection to, if they betray your trust, is there not a different degree of anger that you have that is right, just, real, appropriate anger for the violation of that trust, right? Because with the acquaintance down the street, right, you may have met them a couple of weeks ago. They do something, you're like, man, that's, I'm probably not going to get very close to them. But somebody that you are close to, somebody that you've poured out your affection upon, when they violate your trust, there is something that rises internally, isn't there? 
There's an anger that wells up within you. Why? Because you love them. Because you're committed to them. Because you've given them your loyalty, and you've given them your, your, your love, and you've given them your affection, and you've given them your allegiance, and they violated that. So there's an anger. Right, you've probably heard this saying before, hell hath no fear like a woman who's been scorned. thought maybe Kevin would touch on that last week. But there's, <laughs> there's, there's a sense in which that is, that is right, and that is appropriate, and that is true. Because the depth of love determines the extent of anger or wrath when it's been crossed or violated. Now let me ask you this question. If there is one who loves infinitely, if there is one who loves eternally, if there is one who loves with no bounds or measures, if there is one who loves like that, Frederick Lehman, in his hymn, The Love of God, back in the 1800s, wrote it this way. He said, could we with ink the oceans fill? If all the bodies of water on the face of the earth were filled with ink, and were the skies up above us, if they were made out of parchment, if every stalk or every stick or blade of grass on the earth were a quill or a pen, and every person who's ever lived was a scribe by trade, they were professionals, to write the love of God above, says, would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. If there is one who loves measurelessly, infinitely, eternally, so that every natural resource brought to bear to ride it in the skies above, it would exhaust everything that God has created and still not do it justice. If there is one who loves like that, if there is one who loves like that, then to sin against him would incur infinite anger. It would only be right. So where, back to our initial question, right? where does that reverent, reverential obedience or deference come from? Here's where it comes from. Here's where it comes from. And it's right to translate it that way in that text. But here's where it comes from. If we are by nature, as Paul says, objects of God's wrath, then the only place that we learn to be reverentially obedient to God, to defer to him at every turn, to come under his authority, the only place that we can begin to see that is when we see that what should have been done to us was done to another in our place. That's the only thing that moves the terror to reverence. The only thing that moves the awestruck fear to deference and obedience. To see that what should have been done to us was done to another. That Christ became a curse for our sin and the unmitigated wrath of God fell on him. And when God opens your eyes to see that, then you no longer have to be struck with fear or seized by alarm or terror. But you can draw close to a father. And come under the shadow of his wings as one who cares for you and crushed someone in your place. See, only if you see the depth of God's and the extent of God's wrath can you fathom the depth of his love and grace. 
because the two are intricately bound together. Notice what the text says. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Fear God. Honor the emperor. There's a difference between those two. There's a difference. And the only thing, listen, the only thing. Let me say it this way. Why does, why does, it, why does Peter say it that way? Here's why. Because there is no mortal man who would ever do for you. Who would ever do for you what God has done. And what he's promised to do. There's no mortal man or woman. Fear God, honor the emperor. We got a little bit of time left before they come and sing. So let me just say it this way. There are many people who get twisted this or get this twisted around in their minds. So they don't fear God and honor the emperor, but they fear the emperor and they honor God. They, as opposed to what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, when Jesus says, and do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. They fear the ones who can just do something to, you, to your body. We, we oftentimes, we get that twisted around. We get to fear people who can do something to our body, but not the one who will judge our soul. And that's a dangerous place to be. In fact, some of us get this so twisted around that we don't, go, we don't honor everyone and fear God, but we fear everyone and we honor God. Right? We fear everyone, so we're afraid of everyone. So this, some of you can't say no to anybody. Because you're so afraid of what they're going to think about you, what they're going to say to you, what they're going to say about you behind your back to someone else. And so we're so afraid of other people. Or we're afraid of what can be done to us by those who rule over us. And so what happens is we end up honoring the emperor uh, or, or fearing the emperor and honoring God. So we honor God with our lips, but the real source of our joy and hope is the candidate and the change he promises to usher in. That's really where our hope is. We gather at rallies and we give hundreds, thousands, even millions of dollars to support our candidates and their agenda. And while we, we may show up in church and sing, in Christ alone my hope is found, we live and we feel like in Ben or in Marco or in Ted or in Donald or in Hillary or in Bernie my hope is found. That's what we feel at times in our hearts. This is one of the reasons that we put theology to music and we sing songs like, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, all not some, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I'm not going to put my hope in a politician or their platform because it's sinking sand. Every other foundation that you would build your life upon is going to erode beneath your feet. That's why we sing songs like the one we sung before. No guilt in life in Christ alone. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath. In other words, from the time that I come out of my mama's womb naked, and they slap me on the butt and they remove all the mucus from my mouth. From the life's first cry to final breath when I lie there surrounded, Lord willing, by friends and family, and I breathe for the last time. Listen to what the hymn writer says. Jesus commands my destiny. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that? In this election cycle with all the buzz about where our nation is headed, do you believe that Jesus commands your destiny? That Barack doesn't command your destiny. 
That Ted doesn't command your destiny. That Donald or Hillary or Bernie, they do not command your destiny. There is one and one alone who commands your destiny. And his name is Jesus. That's why we sing songs like that to remind ourselves to radiate our hearts with the truth. Because we get this twisted around so often that we honor God with our lips, but we fear men with our lives. How do you know if that's happening? Let me give you a few questions. I promise we're almost done. Let me give you a few questions. First, is the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, return, and his kingdom rule, is it so small? Is your gospel so small in your eyes that you feel like you have to hitch your hopes to politics and politicians? Is it so small? Are you afraid of losing your country? Like, as if it ever belonged to me anyway. Are you so afraid of losing your country that you're willing to push all your chips to the center of the table and put your hope in political candidates who promised to bring us back to the 1950s? As if leave it to Beaver and church-sponsored segregation and Jim Crow laws were the fullness of God's reign on the earth. Do you really want to go back there? Is your gospel so small and your hope so hollow that it must be fulfilled in this country? I want to know what happened to people like Abraham who are looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 11.10. Are you so tied to the geopolitical position of America on the global stage that you're willing to rally behind any candidate who promises to make America great again in the eyes of those surrounding nations? Is your gospel so small that the ends to which you live is the supremacy and dominance of an earthly kingdom? Are we so afraid, church? Are we so afraid of losing our comfortable, cozy, suburban lifestyle filled with relative prosperity that God never promised to us? Are we so afraid of losing that What he promised is his presence, certain presence in the midst of pain and suffering. Are we so afraid of losing that that we're willing to put all our weight behind any candidate who thinks you think will help you hold on to something that God never promised? Is your gospel so small that the promise of eternal pleasure with God is so dim in your eyes that you're willing to sell your soul to cling to comfort here and now? Listen, what has been exposed about the common conscience of not only our nation, but the church in this election cycle is incredibly sobering. We need a big gospel. A big gospel. Because the real problem in our nation and in the church is the fact that what we need, what we need is a king. What we need is a king. Now listen, this doesn't settle well in a nation that rebelled against monarchical authority in their lives because they didn't have a say in government. (laughs) All right? It doesn't sit well on our tongues. But what we need is a king. See, we fought a war to gain our independence from any kind of monarchical rule. 
what we have found over the last several hundred years in the history of our nation is that every election cycle we find ourselves more frustrated and disillusioned and disappointed because the candidates who run on their platforms and make promises are unable to fulfill them because when they get elected into office, all kinds of partisan politics lock down the promises that they made. So we find ourselves more and more disappointed and disillusioned by elected officials who are bought by lobbyists who are blackmailed by those who have dirt on them, who are powerless to keep their promises. And all this frustration and disillusionment is there for a reason. Do you know that? Do you know that it's there for a reason? And the reason that it's there is because no man or no woman was ever designed to bear all the weight of your hopes and dreams. See, we need a king who can't be bought, a king who can't be blackmailed, a king who can't be bribed, a king who can't be beaten down by lobbyists, a king who keeps his promises and they are sure, a king who is tough and tender, a king who is filled with compassion and courage. And listen, whether you realize it by now or not, we are never going to elect a Messiah to Capitol Hill. We are never going to install a savior. There's never going to be a savior who calls 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue home. There's not. We need a king. And there will never be one on Capitol Hill, but there was one that was on Calvary's Hill. See, the consistent testimony of the Bible is that Jesus is the king that we need, church. Does it mean that we hold our vote, our breath, until we finally feel like we found the Messiah <laughs> that we can install into office? What it means is that no matter who is elected into office, we keep looking to him, to this king. He's the king to whom all other kings in Israel's history point. They were frustrated, disappointed, disillusioned of the sea by many of their rulers, just like we have been. He is the king in the line of David who would eternally occupy the throne over God's people and over all creation. He's touted as the king of the ages in the doxology of Paul's first letter to Timothy in 117. He is hailed as king of kings and lord of lords later in Paul's letter to Timothy in 615. And in the vision John has in Revelation 19 of Jesus returns when he comes back with a tat on his thigh that says king of kings and lord of lords. And he comes back to rule and to reign. In Revelation 15, he's declared to be the king of the nations. In Psalm 10, he is the eternal king. In Psalm 24, he is the king of glory. In Psalm 29, he is the enthroned king, the king who ordains salvation for his people. In Psalm 44, he is the king who processes into the sanctuary. In Psalm 68, the king who works salvation. In Psalm 74, the great king above all gods. In Psalm 95, the king who loves justice. In Psalm 99, he is the only king who can't be bought, the king who can't be blackmailed, the king who can't be beaten down or bribed, the only king who cannot be only overthrown, the only king who rules with grace and truth because he's full, full of both. And he's the only king who keeps every promise he makes. The only king who is tough enough to make war against his enemies and tender enough to receive all who come to him in faith. That is where we need to set our gaze this election cycle. Vote based on the matter, the the things that matter to God. But set your gaze on this king. Fear God and honor the emperor. Let's pray.